Over the past year, we have seen a uh, significant number of new people either coming as members to our church or visiting our church, learning a little bit more about who we are, what we do, what we emphasize. In fact, from what I'm hearing from like-minded churches in our area, attendance has increased significantly in almost all of them. Something unique seems to be happening, especially in the aftermath of the season of shutdown due to COVID-19. It appears that people who traditionally went to church pre-COVID appear to be a bit unsettled, seeking something different than what they previously embraced. Some who've never gone to church or they've attended seasonally or sporadically, or those who attended churches that did not find it necessary to come back and meet together very quickly after the COVID shutdown. These people seem to be appearing to seek something more substantive than what they were previously involved in. At least that's the conversation point that I've had with a number of people. According to the simple records that we keep, and they're pretty simple, in one week last February, we witnessed an increase in attendance by 100 people. And that did not turn downward throughout the rest of the year. That number never did drop. We have seen more people baptized in the last year than we have in any given year in the last 10 years. It could be that we're seeing some of the beginning stages of what might be a revival taking place, perhaps beginning in this area. I don't know. You never know that until you look back on it retrospectively to see perhaps what the Lord is, has done and is doing. But we are seeing a growing interest in Bible exposition, working through the Bible verse by verse, trying to understand the Bible as God intended us to understand it in its context. We have a growing number of people who are interested in a focus, substantive worship and fellowship over a serious treatment of the Bible. But with the influx of new people who have this fresh Bible interest, it is important, I think, that we ensure that we all understand together what it actually is that a church is to be centered upon. And what kind of practical results such a centered ministry will produce? The church is far more than a sermon. The church is far more than what happens in the music. The church is far more than what happens on a platform. In fact, that seems to be one of the challenges of our day is that many people assume that church is simply what happens up here. But it's far more than what happens on a platform. It's far more than what happens on any given Sunday gathering. But we have to stop and ask and answer the question, what is it that a church is to be actually centered upon? That's an easy answer perhaps for some of us. I think it's a more difficult thing to think through in its practicalities and what it should look like in the lives of the people who embrace the gospel what is a church to be centered upon? And what would be the results that we should expect? Is it merely increased attendance numbers or is there something more than that? Now, 
I, most pastors I know, they're great students of the church, and if you walk into their study, you will find probably several shelves worth of books on the church, ecclesiology, and a number of books that talk about what will make a church successful. This week, I was just perusing through a few of those titles on my shelves. There are books like I have on my shelf, Total Church, The Monday Morning Church. That's an interesting one. The Manual of Church Order, written over 150 years ago. The Deliberate Church, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. The Measure of a Church, Sharpening the Focus of the Church. Rediscovering Church, Center Church. The Master's Plan for the Church. Breakout Churches, Simple Church, Natural Church Development, and the Purpose Driven Church, just to name a few. Now, some of these books are more biblically faithful than others, but all of them are essentially doing the same thing. They are helping a generation of Christians to try and center themselves on what will cause the church to be most effective. How do you evaluate the effectiveness of a church? Is it just looking around and seeing that more people are coming than previous? Is it just more baptisms? What, what is the criteria and who gets to determine that criteria? Where do you find that criteria? How do you evaluate the results of your church's approach to ministry? What sort of activities will actually generate church health? What sort of programs will foster a lack of church health? When growth is biblically good, what kind of growth should concern us? What do we call leaders? Have you ever noticed that the titles of pastors are changing? Some aren't even called pastors anymore. Maybe we just call them coach. What should we call them? Why should we call them that? What do they do? How are they chosen? Should churches have membership? If not, then who do you rely upon to do ministry? And how do you keep a group of attending non-members committed to the same cause? If we do have members, what's the criteria for membership? What should members be doing should we be concerned about the details of their personal lives or do we just make sure that everybody's coming to planned events? What's our role towards the community outside the church? How should we respond to the culture? When is it right to adopt the strategies that make society's organizations effective? When is it wrong to do that? In all of that, we're saying, what is it that the church is supposed to be centered upon? to be effective. And I think the question for us is, how do we make sure that we're eternally effective? I mean, we don't want to do all that we're doing and then find out we get to heaven and it was just a ministry that most of what we did doesn't last. Good for a temporary time, but it wasn't something that we're going to bring with us into eternity. How do we make sure that what we're focused upon and centered upon is actually going to last for the rest of eternity? To help us answer that question for the next number of weeks, we're going to be looking at this compact book of Titus. Yes, we're going to get to 2 Thessalonians a little bit later. But as is our normal cause, the, the elders and I, we think through subjects that we think are going to be helpful to begin the new year with, that we think would be helpful for our congregation to think on. You say, well, usually you talk about preaching, rest assured, I will. That, that fits into this, and you'll see some of that over and over. Uh, and so I, I want to talk through that again, but I, I really felt like with 
some of the vast changes that are taking place and the vast numbers of people who are now coming who weren't here a year ago, it would be helpful for us to just make sure that we're all on the same page. That what we're saying about church, we all understand together. And we're moving in the same direction. And we're centered upon the same thing. And that we're trying to move toward. We're not going to do it perfectly. We, we have faults and failures in this. We're always going to be growing in it. Every church is struggling with that. But at least what are we aiming at? What are we aiming at? And I think this book addresses us as a congregation very helpfully. In fact, when I came here a little over 12 years ago, this was the book that I preached through first. I opened with a, a sermon on the Great Commission on my first Sunday here as the pastor teacher, and the next Sunday I started in Titus chapter 1. Because I felt like at that time what we needed was the same thing that we need now. We, we needed a focus that would bring us all together to see us as one body focused on the same thing. Not, not various parts doing their thing, expressing their gifts their way in a variety of ways, but one central focus. We needed to understand what is biblical leadership, who should serve as a biblical leader, what are the expectations of members in a church, how should we be interacting with the society around us. Who do we partner with in ministry when we think about the ministry spreading beyond ourselves? Those were vital questions over 12 years ago. They're vital questions today. Every church goes through generational changes. Some of you were here at that time. And you remember, and you remember some of the, the things we've gone through, the battles that we've faced and fought, and the things that we've adjusted, and the, the ways that we've grown. You were there in that. And some of you, you weren't there for those initial days. You didn't go through those battles. You, some of you walk in here and you think, oh, it's always, it's always been this way. It's not. But that's normal, right? There's generations that change and come and, and into the church, and we need to refocus our attention. And I think we're at one of those seasons now where we simply need to refocus and make sure when we say church and what's effective and what's central that we mean the same thing. And so that's why I want to focus on this book just for a few weeks. This book was written by the Apostle Paul to one of his ministry associates, Titus, they had just completed an initial ministry of planting the gospel and establishing new churches on the tiny island of Crete that's just south of Greece. Paul writes toward the end of his ministry, likely just after he was released from his Roman imprisonment that's recorded in Acts chapter 28. He's moving about freely. He's planting churches where the gospel has never been named. That's why we have this book of Titus. He's writing to encourage Titus on what's next. He's also given, giving instruction to existing churches like the church in Ephesus that had existed for some time and they're beginning to see some problems arise and so he writes to address those issues as well before he goes back into imprisonment and eventually martyrdom. Second Timothy records that time was, which is probably his last book that we have before he was martyred. The reason why I focus on this book is because Paul is writing to a group of churches who are new churches, lots of new people in these churches. 
and he's writing to establish what should the church focus their attention on. Upon what should they give most of their time and attention? What should be the emphases of these congregations that are new and fledgling churches? What should they focus upon? That's what the book is all about. And it's very clear as to what the center of the church should be. What should drive not only the beginning of a Christian's life, but the everyday activities of every Christian and thus every church. This is not just for this church and another church has the option to emphasize something else as a center point. No, this is the center point for any congregation that calls themselves a Christian congregation. This is not optional. You don't get to come up with this on your own. You don't need a new mission statement. You don't need any of that. This book says, here's what the focus is for all the churches. Because God is the founder of the church. Christ died for the church. It belongs to him. This is what he wants. It's very simple. What is the one center point of the church? It is the gospel. It is the gospel. Why? Why would we say that the gospel is the center point of the church? Because the gospel is the only thing, the only message that we have that actually unlocks the human heart to do what the human heart and to enjoy what the human heart was originally created to do and to enjoy, and that is the glory of God. God made everything to demonstrate his glory. When sin entered and we fell away from fellowship with God, the gospel message then becomes the only thing that restores us to understand, to appreciate, to embrace, and to enjoy, to promote the grandeur, the majesty, the supremacy, the glory of God. That's why the church has to be centered on the gospel message because it unlocks what is most important for the entire universe, and that is the glory of God. So there's one fundamental center point, the gospel. And there's actually one fundamental result, and that is a behavior that fits with the gospel. It is not just emphasis on the gospel message, here's how to become a Christian, that we're to be focused on. We're to actually expect, if we focus on the gospel message, that there is a result to look for, and that is a behavior, a behavior, a character that actually fits with the gospel message. How you define the gospel will tell us what we're we're expecting from the results of it as well, right? So we need a gospel that is flourishing among us in a way that creates a behavior that fits along with that message. Now, I want to show you that 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 is really the emphasis of this book. Centralize on the gospel in such a way that it produces a character, a behavior that fits that gospel. I want you to see that. So, here's here's what we're doing this morning. Just, I I know there's some note takers here and And you're going to say, okay, when do we get to the point of the sermon? So let me just, I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview. All right? Just a little bit of an overview. It's going to take some time. So don't worry. Don't worry. I know where we're going. I will lead you with me. Then we're going to, we will look at the first four verses that were read. But I want to give you a big picture so you see it. And then let's dive in and we'll look at at the parts together. All right? So I, I saw worry on some faces. Don't be worried. 
I've got you. It's all right. So, one fundamental center point for all churches is the gospel message. I want to show you that in this book. It is to be, the gospel is to be the center point of every leader's ministry. You see it in chapter 1. Look at verse 9. What is a leader to do? He's to hold fast what? The faithful word. What is the faithful word? That's, the, that's a synonym for the gospel, isn't it? He's to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with what? Doctrine. Teaching. So that he'll be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. The entirety of an elder's ministry, a leader's ministry, is to focus on the gospel. Sound teaching. Faithful words. Look at verse 13. This testimony is true, and the testimony that is true is about Cretans being liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Paul says, yep, that's how Cretans are. He says, for this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be what? Sound in the faith. What is the faith? It's the gospel. Sound in the faith. That is the body of truth that is the message we preach. Every elder's ministry is all about the gospel. So is every member's life to be about the gospel. You see it in chapter 2. The motivation for all of their life is to be the gospel message. Look at verse 1. Paul tells Titus, as for you, speak the things which are, notice this, fitting, that fit with sound doctrine. What is sound doctrine? The gospel message. So preach the things that fit with that sound doctrine. Notice where he goes. Older men, he begins in verse 2. He then talks to older women in verse 3. And these older women are to teach the younger women, verse 4, to love their husbands, love their children, be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Why? Why should they be this kind of people? So that The word of God, another synonym for the gospel message. The word of God, the totality of the scripture is the gospel. The gospel is not just a few points from the Bible. The gospel is the whole of the message of the Bible. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. You live a certain way because the gospel cannot be dishonored. What does that mean? Members live with a center point of the gospel. Notice verse Five or verse 7, pardon me. In all things to the young men show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in what? Doctrine. The gospel message. Purity in the gospel message. Notice verse 10. Bond slaves are not to be pilfering but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God. They live in such a way that the doctrine of God, the gospel of God is uppermost in their minds. Verse 11, listen to this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. What do we call that? That's the gospel, right? And that message is to motivate all of the 
older men, older women, younger men, older, younger, bond slaves, whoever's a part of the church is to be driven by that message, the gospel. The gospel is also the center motivation that drives how we live in our society. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What is that? That's the gospel message, isn't it? And he gives that gospel message so that verse 1 of chapter 3 might be a reality, that we would be reminded to be subject to rulers, authorities, and obedient and ready for every good deed. How are we to act towards all those in a society around us with the gospel as the center motivation of everything? If you're a Christian, if you're in a Christian church, our motivation has nothing to do with political parties. Nothing. You as an individual may choose to, to vote in the freedoms that we enjoy uniquely in our country. You should do that. But the gospel itself is the defining mark of all of us as a Christian. Not our country, not patriotism, the gospel itself. When the world hears from Summit Woods Baptist Church, what they should hear is our words dripped and saturated with the gospel message. Anything else is a distraction. You see how throughout this book, from leaders to members to just our interaction with society, everything is about the gospel. Not just about the gospel. What does the gospel produce? What does the gospel actually produce? The gospel produces a certain kind of behavior or a certain kind of character. This should be what we're looking for in the church. It's not necessarily how many are in the pews, how many embraced or came into initial faith, but what kind of character do the people who say they're all about the gospel actually have and show? In fact, this book is focused on doing good deeds, not to gain the gospel, but because it's a result of the gospel. I want you to see that emphasis. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their what? Their deeds, they deny him. Being detestable, disobedient, worthless for every good deed. There are some people who say they have a knowledge of God, but the way they live undoes that. That's not a gospel-centered church. Chapter 2, verse 1, again, as for you, speak the things which are fitting. There are things that are fitting with sound doctrine. If we're all about the gospel, what fits with, with sound doctrine? And what does he emphasize for older men, older women, younger women, younger men? What does he talk about that fits? Behavior, character. That's the rest of chapter 2, essentially. 
Young men, chapter 2, verse 7, in all things show yourself to be an example of what? Good deeds. Good deeds. Not just deeds that the society would think are good, but good that matches with the gospel. Titus 2, verse 12 The gospel instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. Verse 14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. Chapter 3, verse 1, remind them. That is, Christians to be subject to rulers, authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Again, not just a good that the general society might say is good, but what kind of good actually displays what you say you believe in the gospel. Chapter 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement concerning these things. I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God... There's the message, there's the gospel. We'll be careful to engage in good deeds. Notice toward the end of the book, chapter 3, verse 14. Our people must learn to engage in good deeds. Do you see the emphasis? The center point of ministry is the gospel. And it is the gospel that is so embraced that it produces Actions, activity, deeds, character that fit with that gospel message. In other words, gospel-centered belief will lead to gospel-centered behavior. The gospel then is the center of all church ministry in what we believe and in how we behave. It means this. If you say you have embraced salvation in faith in Jesus Christ... And yet you knowingly, willingly choose to live in a manner that is inconsistent with, disobedient to the Lordship of Christ. You knowingly, willingly say, I know what he says, I know what the word says, but I'm not going to do that. That is not a gospel-centered life. That cannot be a gospel-centered church if the whole church acts that way. Now, I get it. We all fail. We all have struggles with sin. I'm not talking about the battle with sin. I'm talking about the intentionality to say, I know what the Bible says, and I'm choosing, I'm not going to do it. The gospel is the center point of all ministry, and it produces a particular kind of character and behavior. Now, In this letter, Paul addresses five different elements of church life in which gospel-centered beliefs should produce gospel-centered behavior. And this is what we're going to study over the next number of weeks. Five different elements of a church life in which gospel-centered beliefs should produce gospel-centered behavior. We should have a gospel-centered foundation. That's what we're going to look at this morning, a gospel-centered foundation. That's the first part, verses 1 to 4. If a church is going to be gospel-centered, it has to have gospel-centered leaders. That's from chapter 1, verse 5 to the end of the chapter. Almost all of chapter 1. It's all about leadership. And that's fundamental. Where the leaders lead, the congregation goes. So you need gospel-centered leaders. Then, third, 
you must have gospel-centered members. If you want a gospel-centered church, you have to have a membership that is devoted to the gospel. And you have to hold them accountable to that. That's what chapter 2 says. Teach these things and then say them again and exhort people in these. It has to be a membership. All of chapter 2 is about the membership of the church being driven by the gospel in what they believe and in how they act. Chapter 3 is all about a gospel-centered citizenship. Gospel-centered citizens. How do we act as citizens in the midst of a culture that does not believe the gospel? We centralize the gospel in our belief and in our behavior as citizens. That's chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. The final element of church life that shows us a gospel-centered church is gospel-centered partners, people that we partner with to spread the ministry of the gospel, chapter 3, verses 12 to 15, gospel-centered partners. The foundation, we lay a foundation that's fixed on the gospel. We have leaders fixed on the gospel, members saturated with the gospel, citizens living out the gospel, and partners who also embrace the gospel. That makes a gospel-centered church. Did you notice in all of those, the foundation, the leaders, the members, the citizens, the partners, it's focused on people, people, leaders, members, citizens, partners, not group activities, not music. In fact, he doesn't say anything about music or coffee or nursery care. Now, most of those things are important. I don't know if coffee's essential. But these things are helpful. They can be helpful. But they're, they're servants, not masters in the church. They're servants. We do not build our church around them. We do not promote our church around servants to the gospel. We build and promote our church with the gospel that's broadcast through our life, our behavior. That is a gospel-centered church. It's the people in the church, not just seeing how many you can get in, but seeing that those who embrace live out the gospel. All of them. All of them. It's character that will determine behavior. You're going to see that in leaders, members, citizens. Character determines behavior. Paul always starts with, here's the character the person should be, and it leads to this kind of behavior. He'll do that with the elders. He'll do that with the members in chapter 2. He'll do that with citizens in chapter 3. Character determines behavior. And behavior, behavior will always reveal, it'll reveal your character. What you do consistently overall is who you are. It is who you are. So where the gospel is driving not only your initial belief in Jesus, and sometimes that's the way we talk about the gospel. The gospel is just how to get into the kingdom. No, the gospel is how you live as a kingdom citizen. Where the gospel is driving not only your initial belief in Jesus, but the way you live day in and day out for Jesus, you will have a gospel-centered church. So I want to begin with the first element of a gospel-centered church. Meaning, this is where we take notes now, all right? That is the, the foundation. 
a gospel-centered foundation. We want a gospel-centered foundation. Paul's introduction is fascinating because every single word in his introduction is just dripping with gospel-centered language. And I want you to see that. We're actually going to look this morning at five ingredients necessary to form a foundation for a gospel-centered church. And I say foundation, Paul was the founder of these churches on the island of Crete. Titus was his ministry associate who was helping them. They founded it this way. And when Paul begins his letter, he begins in such a way as he says, I am all about the gospel. Therefore, everything we do has to be about the gospel. So these are foundations. These are foundational for us having a gospel-centered ministry. So what are the five ingredients Necessary to form a foundation for a gospel-centered church. Let me list them for you. We'll walk through them together. First, you must have a gospel-centered identity. A gospel-centered identity. It's the first part of verse 1. Where Paul, and he begins the letter like he begins many letters. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. You say, well, how is that gospel-centered? Oh, it is. Even his name is gospel-centered, isn't it? What was Paul's name before he became a Christian? Saul. Now, perhaps he had the name Paul as a given name by his family. He just never went by it. And what he did go by, Saul was all attached to persecuting the church opposing Christianity. So when he becomes a Christian, his whole identity leaves behind Saul to become Paul. Just to say his name is to rehearse the effectiveness of the gospel. Paul. The gospel defined him. To call himself then a bondservant, we looked at this some last week as well, it's another gospel-centered idea. Bondservant, that is literally the slave of God, a slave that belongs to God. It's unfortunate that many of our English translations translate this as servant. Bondservant in the New American Standard is, is a way to try to blend those two ideas of slavery and servant without being too offensive. But the word is simply the word for slave. Slave. Servant has the idea of maybe a paid employee. It's more benign. It's less severe than this term doulos in the Greek actually is. A slave is not guaranteed employment laws to protect his rights. He has no personal rights. He has no 1-800 number to make a complaint and no HR department that he can go to to govern his work eligibility, etc. Not a slave. This term is one of the most servile of terms, a slave whose position is to serve the will of another. This is the absence of any personal rights, a person whose entire existence is to do what the master asks of him or her, totally under the authority, totally under the control of another. This term is actually used to speak of slaves who are, chapter 2, verse 9, to be subject to their own masters in everything. It's the same term. As we said last week in Romans, Paul described himself this way in Romans 1.1, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. 
In Galatians 1.10, Paul said, if I am now seeking the favor of men, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were trying to please men, listen to this, if I were trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. If I had in me a heart to do what someone else wants me to do, I'm not a slave. I'm not a slave of Christ. I only do what Christ calls me to do. Why why use that kind of a term to describe himself? Well, who are we before we become Christians? Well, chapter 3, verse 3 of the book of Titus says, we were all once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, and listen to this, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. You know, we, we have energetic conversations sometimes about the topic of free will. You ever had that conversation with someone, free will? Do you believe in free will? Oh, I believe in free will. I think you do everything you want to do. The problem is that your want to is enslaved to your nature. And if your nature is enslaved to sin, you do what your nature tells you to do. And that's who all of us are before Christ, enslaved to our sin. Why, why do you feel such compulsion to just do what you feel even though you know that it disobeys God because you're enslaved to sin. But do you remember how the Bible depicts us when we come to faith in Christ? Like Romans six seventeen. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and have been freed from sin. You became slaves to righteousness. Romans 6.22, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. What does that mean? The gospel does not liberate us from slavery. It changes our master. It changes our master from sin to God, from an evil dictator to a benevolent savior but still a master. Our position should always remind us of the work of the gospel, that we've been transferred from one kingdom's rule, the kingdom of darkness, into another kingdom, the kingdom of God's dear son. We are not called as Christians to merely do as we wish, but to do as our master wishes. And let me, let me tell you, for the heart of a Christian to do what the master dictates is pure satisfaction and joy and liberty. Remember 1 Corinthians 6.20? You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. You were bought with a price. What does that mean? That's the language of slavery. You were enslaved to God. What better master to be enslaved to than the most kind, gracious, benevolent, good caring father who will love you like you were his child. That's who you're enslaved to. That's gospel language. That's your identity, who you are. It's not just who you are in your identity, but our identity is also found in what we do. Do you see how Paul reflects that in his activity? He's not only Paul a bondservant. There's his who he is. What does he do? 
He is also an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is what he does. If someone asks you, tell me a little bit about yourself. You start talking about your vocation. You talk about what you do with your life most of a given day. This is what I do. Paul's doing the same here. That's a part of who he is, his identity. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's a specific position. It's a position that's described in Ephesians 4.11 or Ephesians 2.20 and Ephesians 3.5. It's a specific pass, uh, position of authority as a divine representative of Jesus Christ. It was different than a pastor, different than a prophet. He had an elevated status, one of authority, one in which he was revealing the New Testament mystery of Christ, that is the gospel message, finalizing what the Old Testament had predicted. The apostles did that. The church is built on that apostolic ministry. We actually are studying the apostolic revelation. We call it the New Testament. That's the revelation of the apostles. Which is a reminder that the gospel liberates you into becoming God's slave so that you might serve God's people. Paul looked at himself, I'm a bond slave of God and I'm an apostle, meaning I exist to serve other people for the sake of the gospel. I look at that. This is Paul's specific giftedness. What is yours? Whatever gift you and I may have, it exists not for ourselves, but for the good of someone else. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what purpose? The common good for someone else. Gospel-driven people see gifts, see service, see activity, not as rights of personal expression, but tools by which to serve another because of what Christ has done in their life. That is how Paul saw himself and his activity. I am in this position because God put me here. I'm a slave to him. He said I'll serve this way. I'm not doing this just for self-expression. We need to rethink that at times with all of the ministries and talents and abilities that all of us possess it's not about self-expression. We're not here to do our thing. There's a difference between doing your thing and being a slave and using that gift for the purposes of God as he directs and the timing he directs. So never act as if your gift is for yourself. Anytime you serve, you remind yourself you're privileged to be of benefit to the body because God has had such immense grace on you to do so. So think about these, these two descriptions here of a gospel-centered person in identity. Gospel-driven people are submissive slaves to God and God's purposes for his church. We don't position ourselves. We don't maneuver ourselves. We don't manipulate. We don't manhandle our way around the church. We don't impose our agendas or our understanding on God, on, on God's church. We're humble slaves of God. We're eager servants of God's people because we are rescued slaves, called to serve, called to bless other rescued slaves. So, gospel-centered church, you want a foundation of a gospel-centered church? It's found in our identity, our gospel-centered identity, who we are and what we do. There's a second ingredient necessary for the foundation of a gospel-centered church we find here in verse 1. It is a gospel-centered motivation. A gospel-centered motivation. What motivates Paul, the bond slave of God? 
the apostle of Jesus Christ. What is his motivation? What does he desire? What drives him? You see it at the end of verse 1? He is a slave of God. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. That's his motive. For the faith of those chosen of God. He does everything he does for people to believe. That's his motivation. I want you to believe. Now, I know there is that pesky word there, chosen. We could spend a little time on that. It's an important word. It's a term that is used to describe people who belong to God. They are chosen. In the New Testament, this word for chosen is found in this noun form some 22 times. Two times of those 22, it refers to Christ as God's elect. One time, it refers to angels as being elect. Every other time, it refers exclusively to Christians as being chosen by God. It's a synonym for a Christian. If you're a Christian, you have been chosen by God. You are chosen by God. That should be a hallelujah moment. It should be. The elect are Christians. It's a synonym for Christianity. Genuine disciples of Christ are the elect, the chosen of God. As Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two fourteen. many are called, but few are what? Chosen. It's a biblical fact. It's just a biblical manner to talk about believers. Believers are the elect. It was used in the Old Testament to refer to Israel, not a people who had earned favor from God, not a people who had done enough to be, become the chosen of God. They weren't a really great people, were they? But God chose them. He chose Israel. They were the elect nation of God, selected to be God's particular covenant-bearing people. So when you talk about being elect and you talk about being chosen, this is the divine perspective on salvation. It is salvation from the viewpoint of heaven. From the viewpoint of heaven, Christians are chosen. They are the elect of God. But I want you to notice the phrase carefully here in Titus. Paul's motivation behind all of his ministry is for the faith of the chosen. This is fascinating. For the belief of the chosen. What does that mean? So that the chosen will believe. He exists so that people will believe. Their faith. Paul had no clue who the elect were. He didn't walk around and look at people and see on one forehead the, an E, another an E with a slash through it. And he says, I'll I'll preach to the E's, but not the non-E's. Or maybe I should do that back and forth. That's not personal, all right? He doesn't know who the elect are until they believe. When they believe, guess what? They've shown themselves to be the elect. So Paul doesn't work with just a select few who God said, these are the elect, just call them to believe. He doesn't do that. Paul calls all to believe, and those who do so show the work of God in their heart. And here we see it again. 
It's the one coin with two distinct sides. From one, the human perspective of salvation, that's the earthly side. Here's those who believe. The chosen, that's the divine side, the heavenly perspective. These are the ones who believe. They're the chosen of God. As I've said before, there is mystery in that, and there's a host of questions that perhaps come up in your mind, but did you notice that Paul doesn't say any more here? He just simply says, I exist for the belief of those who are chosen. He doesn't have a problem with these two. Human responsibility, divine prerogative fit together nicely for him. He doesn't question them. He lets them lay there side by side and says, it's beautiful. It's what I'm all about. I preach so that you would believe and those who believe show the work of God. They show that they are the elect. But I think that is a powerful motivation. It's not just how many can I get in. I hear this a lot. The goal of the church is how many can we get to say the prayer, the sinner's prayer? How many can we get in to fill the pews? Let's do everything we can to just fill the place. That isn't Paul's pure motivation. You say, well, he's there for the faith, the belief of those chosen of God. But what else? Did you see the next phrase? And the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. I am in this for people to believe and show the divine work of God. That's for the faith of those chosen of God. But I'm also motivated by the knowledge of the truth. That term, the knowledge of the truth, is used a number of times in the pastoral epistles simply as a synonym for the gospel, embracing the gospel. Believing in Christ, the knowledge of the truth. It's the true knowledge of truth. It's not just knowing the truth, two plus two equals four. Everybody knows that. That's true. No, it's two plus two equals God. That's the knowledge of the truth. When you see the world and its realities, you come to the conclusion God is in charge. When you have that kind of knowledge, it's an epignosis, it's an intensified form of the Greek word to know meaning you have a full, rich, intense knowledge of the truth that leads you to God. And that knowledge of God is in accordance with what? A behavior, godliness. I am in this, he says, to see people believe and show the work of God and come to a true, deep knowledge of the truth that makes them look godly. So he's not just concerned with filling the empty spots. His motivation and drive is to say, I want to present you to God as godly people. To live in godliness. So he preaches to that end. He has conversations, personal conversations to that end. He prays with that in mind. He confronts sin with that in mind. He encourages with that in mind. He wants to see people transformed in godliness. Yes, believe, but believe so that you change. That's an incredible motivation. You want a gospel-centered church? It has to have both. You want to see people come to faith. You want to see them embrace the truth with such a knowledge that they look godly. It reveals God's activity. Let's look at a third ingredient that forms the foundation of a gospel-centered church. A third ingredient. A gospel-centered hope. This is so important. A gospel-centered hope. It's verse 2. In the hope of eternal life. I'm a bondservant of God. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul says. To see people 
come to faith, who are chosen by God to see them embrace the knowledge of the truth that makes them godly in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. Hope in the New Testament never refers to the sort of human hope we tend to casually talk about, you know, like the the hope you have that Brett will finish soon, but probably won't. Biblical hope is never the hope of skepticism. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is always certain, confident, encouraged. It's something that refers to the future that has not been fully realized now. This is referring to the end of salvation, salvation's final point, the hope of eternal life. Yes, we possess eternal life in the here and now, but we are persevering in the here and now to reach the hope, the certainty of eternal life in the future, final salvation. And notice this eternal life. It's something that God promised long ages ago. God made a promise about your life in Christ that's an eternal life. He made that promise long ages ago. The Bible says before time began, he made this promise. Why does Paul say here, it's a God who cannot lie? Because he made a promise he's going to keep. Now, how does this relate to having a gospel-centered church? People are problematic. Even Christian people are. Yes, some of you are. (laughs) I am. We're problematic. And sometimes when you're working with people and you see them go forward and back, you know what? Sometimes we see people believe and stop believing. Don't we? What keeps you from losing it? What keeps you from being so discouraged that you give up in ministry, in preaching the gospel? When someone walks away or they've fallen back into that same sin that they've struggled with so many times before, what actually keeps you from saying, all right, I'm done with this? The fact that God has promised eternal life and he cannot lie. He will keep his promise. That's, that's hope. If I have a gospel-centered church, I have a church that says, you know what? We keep working with sinners. We keep calling them to faith. We keep working with them, even though we go over it and over it and over it because the goal is godliness and righteousness and reaching the final point of living in eternal life with Christ forever. We just keep working until that time comes. And we have hope in God. He has promised. He won't lie. He will keep the promise. That keeps us in ministry. Otherwise, I can tell you what happens to a lot of pastors and a lot of church members when the numbers decline and the budget isn't robust and people are complaining and they're saying, I'm not fed or these people are living this way and they've done this against me and it starts to become a sour environment. Some church members leave for a better show. Some pastors leave because they don't like the conflict. They don't want any more of it. In a gospel-centered church, we persevere 
even when it's hard, even when it's declining. We try to be faithful to what God has revealed because God has called us into this in hope of eternal life, which he promised and he can't lie. So we don't stop. I think that's a pretty powerful motivation in ministry, isn't it? There's a fourth ingredient we need for the right foundation of a gospel-centered church. Found in verse 3, it's a gospel-centered message. It's a gospel-centered message. God made the promise of eternal life long ago, and verse 3 says, but at the proper time, and I think this means the, the time when Christ came and lived his life on the earth, at the proper time he manifested even his word. Christ is the living word, and he is the one whom we proclaim. At the proper time he manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. What does this mean? He has a gospel-centered message. He's preaching about Christ. He's preaching about all the implications of Christ. All of the New Testament epistles are telling us what the gospels actually mean and what their implications are. This is the message he's preaching and proclaiming about Christ, the life, the word. That's why preaching is important. And he doesn't have an option. He was given this message according to the commandment of God our Savior. This, this should be helpful. Our preaching isn't to be about anything other than the gospel work. About the Bible, the proclamation. God has commanded it. There isn't anything for us to talk about when we come here on the Lord's Day other than what does the Bible say? That's it. What does God say to us? It's not a conversation between the preacher and the pew. What do you think? Now, here's what I think. What do you think? What, here's what I think. It's not a dialogue. It's a monologue. And it's not the preacher speaks, you listen. It is the Word of God speaks. The preacher tells, this is what the Word says. We listen. God speaks. That's it. It's the proclamation of God's Word. It's His message. Deviate from that, you don't have a gospel-centered church. You don't have a gospel-centered church if you don't simply enslave yourself to the message he commanded. Preaching the Bible protects that promise and it propagates that promise. That's what we're all about. We'll see more of that when we look into the leader's life and his role. So in other words, preaching is not all about how to be creative. It's not about being new we're not here to be ingenious, and you're quite cognizant of that. There's nothing really ingenious, creative, or new here. Right. <laughs> I'm okay with that. You just don't have to say it so loud, Dan. Amen. Just preach what God has unveiled and revealed and told us to preach. One final ingredient for the foundation necessary for a gospel-centered church. Number five, it's gospel-centered fellowship. Gospel-centered fellowship. Verse four, to Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. 
Titus was a faithful ministry partner with Paul. He was an essential element of assisting Paul with the spiritually divisive church in Corinth. When Paul was in Corinth, he was involved in confronting the Judaizers in Jerusalem who insisted that circumcision was essential to the gospel of Jesus. We read that in Galatians 2. He was one who, who Paul valued at the very end of his life. We see that in 2 Timothy 4. He wasn't a pastor like we know pastors today. He's what we refer to as an apostolic representative. He represented the apostolic ministry of Paul. He would go to the church and say, on behalf of Paul and his apostolic ministry, this is what we should do. And that's what this letter is. That's why he's in in Crete, on the island of Crete. And we'll look more into that next week. But did you notice how Paul refers to him? My true child in a common faith. My true child, a genuine son, not illegitimate but a true son in a common faith, in a faith that he shares with Paul. They have fellowship together over the faith. What defines their relationship? It's not just an average friendship. It's not just similar likes and dislikes. It is the faith that they share in common. This is the heartbeat of a gospel-centered church The reason we relate to one another as we do is because we share in a common faith as true children of God. Likely we wouldn't know one another, would we? We we would not come into contact with one another. We probably would not do what we're doing on a Sunday morning together and sing these songs and pray this way and sit and listen to a sermon like this. We wouldn't do that if it was not something in the gospel we shared in common. But we do. And when it is the gospel that you share in common, that is the foundational stone for a gospel-centered church. It's not just that we, we like doing things together. We love Christ together. We love the Word of God together. We're loving each other because of the gospel that was implanted in our hearts. We stick with each other not because it's always convenient or easy. We do it because we share a common faith. That's what fellowship is. That's what biblical friendship is. That's what discipleship is. So Paul writes here to a gospel partner. He's describing gospel camaraderie, gospel-driven fellowship which needs to define us. So, if you want a foundation that forms a gospel-centered church, then we need to focus upon our identity in the gospel, our motivation driven by the gospel, our hope that keeps us stable and confident in the gospel, the message that preserves the gospel and promotes the gospel, and a fellowship that breeds more commitment to the gospel. That's the foundation. That's what we want to define ourselves by. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for all of us together that as we hear these things, that our heart would resonate together over them that we would say with each other, these are the things we desire with one another. And we want for each other and we want in our relationship together. 
We want our congregation to be driven by the gospel, centered on the gospel itself, producing a behavior that displays the gospel. Lord, we know that would be most effective. Father, I pray for those in this room today who, whose behavior denies the gospel. I pray you would show them your hope, the promise that you've made, that you would change them and preserve them, that you would overcome their sin by what Christ has done on the cross, that you would be their strength, you would be their ability to overcome, you would be their satisfaction in life. Would you open their eyes to see it and embrace it this morning? And Lord, we pray that we will be faithful to this work of the gospel, fix ourselves on it, define it together appropriately, and hold together in unity around this gospel message. We pray for this help and this aid. We pray that you'll serve your people through your word in such a way that we're strengthened by it. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Let's stand together. Should nothing of our 